This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. National Basketball League franchise, the New Zealand Breakers, have become one of the first professional sports franchises to obtain ESG certification. I'm joined by the organisation's chief executive, Lisa Edzer, to discuss why. Lisa, why don't we start with the nuts and bolts of this certification? What's it involved? How have you got to this position? Yeah, sure. Um, So basically ESG is, uh, I guess, the three pillars that you report against for sustainability, environmental, social and governance. This was introduced to us uh, through our ownership group, K2 Integrity out of New York. They're a risk assessment firm. A couple of our owners and investors use them a lot when they're making you know, their big decisions. Um, and K2 were branching out into sports, so the introduction was made. They came to us to see if we'd like to sort of be the first to do the sports certification. Um, It involved going through, uh, I guess, like a questionnaire where they measured the different things we do in the the areas of ESG. Um, They validated those. It certainly wasn't a lip service. Mm -hmm. We had to give them examples and they followed through uh, talking to partners or providers that we use. Um, Yeah, measured, I guess, how we perform. And um, after a few meetings and about nine months of work, um, issued us certain so a, a lengthy process, sounds pretty detailed as well. Yeah, to be fair, it was made a bit longer because when we were introduced to them, we were in the middle of our season. Yeah. Um, and then we sort of had to, I, I, we worked around, I guess, playing games and things. Mm-hmm. Um, but lengthy, yes, because they went to the extent, as I say, to make sure that we weren't just ticking a box, that we were actually, they had needed to validate what we said that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, but an easy process, I have to be honest. Most of the things were... Um, activities we already do or policies we already have, we just needed to formalise them. So what might be some examples of that sort of stuff that you already had in place? That we already had in place, yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, the sustainability side, I mean, like I hope everybody in New Zealand, getting rid of single-use plastics, Mm -hmm. recycling, um, you know, thinking, being conscious of things like the green space outside our office and how we can help rejuvenate that, those kinds of things. And the social and governance side... Again, for me, common sense, but, um, you know, naturally we're not, uh, we don't, um, we're not biased in terms of race, gender, you know, um, sexual preferences, those kinds of things. They don't make a difference to who we hire, who we don't hire. Having a good policy around the way that you interact with people and the way you treat people, those kinds of things, they were already in place. As I say, they just, they weren't formalised, they were just a natural expectation of what it means to be in the breakers. Any surprises for you in there or anything that you've had to change reasonably significantly on the back of it? Or? No, no, really no no significant changes. As I say, and I don't mean to repeat myself, but it was just about formalising things. So having, you know, having some clear policies in place where people can refer to it. You're getting rid of those grey areas and then you're minimising, you know, any sort of uncertainty. And I think that that was probably what we needed to focus on most. We've, we're fortunate in a small business that, that we own and run to, to not have a lot of sort of corporate guidelines around us and perhaps that's where we needed just to, that is where we needed to step up a little bit and make those policies. So, you know, ESG certification, it's a growing area. Yes. Businesses are doing it all over the shop. 
Um, Obviously, the franchise is a business, but it's also a sports team, and that's what most people would sort of perceive it as. Correct. Why why do this? (laughs) Exactly. Well, we've certainly found that um, more and more investors uh, are looking for this kind of thing when they're looking to invest, and, you know, the cost of running a sports franchise is not getting any cheaper, so we're always looking for new investors, um, and be that personal investment or sponsorship, Mm -hmm. but also um, consumers and employees have a higher expectation I think these days to you know understand that you're not only a good steward of your financial capital but that you're thinking about the social and the governance side and so we wanted to be able to you know demonstrate that we have that framework in place and that we do actually deliver on what we say you know if a fan's deciding where to spend their $50 on whether they want to come along with the family to a, a basketball game or perhaps spend it elsewhere we want them to know that you know there's we've got a bit of depth to us it's more than just a, a sports game. And I presume you've brought some sponsors along on this ride or that you've been engaging with them about this process as well what's the feedback been from them? Yeah we absolutely well our naming rights partner BNZ have their own ESG um, policies in place and they're certainly delighted that we have similar um, values as as they do in this space. Um, Manuka Doctor also, a partner that's come back on board this season. They export goods globally, so they're very aware of carbon footprint. We obviously have a large carbon footprint being that we play in an Australian league. So um, for both of us having the understanding of you know what's necessary to help sort of reduce that and minimise that carbon footprint, that's made a big difference for them as well, being a part of, of the Breakers family. Would you expect other sports teams to follow suit? or I would hope so, yeah. I think we have a responsibility to do that. Um, you know, we also have a platform to be able to speak about it with through our, our players and our athletes, so we're in a, in a fortunate position there. But really, I mean, a, a more sustainable and responsible sports industry is no different to a more sustainable and responsible world at the end of the day. Lisa, thanks for your time. No, thank you for having me. Fund managers in the US are required to disclose how much a fund's portfolio manager is personally invested in a fund, but it's about the only country in the world to do so. For this week's shoeshine column, Hamish McNichol is pondering whether New Zealand should follow suit. Hi Hamish. Hi Will. So how have you tackled this question? Yeah, it sort of started out, um, there's a column in the AFR a few months ago basically pointing out that one of the biggest Qantas bulls in the market at a time when Qantas was uh, going through all the stuff that it's been through this year, um, was talking up the the firm and it emerged that sort of the lead analyst in that firm um, was also a a massive shareholder in in Qantas. And it was sort of, you know, it just raised the question of how much personal account, own account trading do fund managers, analysts, people like that do. Um, And so we sort of thought... You know, we could do some research on this in New Zealand context. So uh, we approached 12 firms, um, sort of the largest KiwiSaver and fund management firms in the country. Uh, nine of them responded. We also spoke to ACC and New Zealand Super, um, who are obviously influential investors in the New Zealand market as well, just to see what their policies are around a, whether they allow portfolio managers, senior people within their firm to have their own investments, um, to personally invest in stocks on the side. Um, B, what sort of policies they have around that, whether it's different for New Zealand and Australian equities versus international equities. Um, but then it also sort of evolved into this idea of how invested in their own products are they. 
Um, is your portfolio manager invested in the fund that they are running what might be your KiwiSaver investment or um, other funds that you might have invested as well. So basically sent out these surveys to all these firms. Most of them participated to varying degrees. Um, and yeah, it's been some in- interesting feedback. Let's focus on personal trading first. What, what, did they, what results did you get back? So uh, it, was, it was quite varied, actually. Um, what was consistent is that every firm does have a policy, as you would expect, um, on this sort of stuff. Um, there seems to be a lot of controls in place at most of these firms as well. A bunch of layers you have to go through if you do want to make um, a trade on the side sort of thing. Various people you've got to talk to. Um, some firms take it further than others. Milford Asset Management, for instance, um, for its entire existence has had a policy that its senior people can only invest in Milford products. Um, other firms can sort of yeah allow you to invest um, in international stocks but not in Australasian stocks. Other firms allow you to invest so long as the fund or the firm itself isn't invested or thinking about investing in those firms. Um, Fisher Funds has a policy whereby its chief executive and chief investment officer can at any stage just issue a blanket blackout on any stock. Um, so, yeah, sort of varying degrees, but as you would expect, um, and as the AFMA later confirmed, you know, we would expect to see these sorts of policies in place. Um, but it is interesting how far some firms take it in terms of, no, you can't have any personal investing at all, or yes, you can, but we just want to know about it all the time. Okay, another thing you might expect is for fund managers to invest in their own funds. Mm. Uh, what did you find on that one? Yeah, this was... Um, So in the US, you have to disclose this in a prospectus. Um, That's been a rule since 2005. Um, And the basic justification for that is this whole alignment of interests idea, right? If you're a portfolio manager, you're selling a product, which is about investing in certain products and certain funds, stocks, all that sort of stuff. If you're asking people to invest in you, then um, it you can see the argument that if you're also invested in that product and that fund, that your interests are in line, you both want to go. Um, you, you know, you're both seeking the best out of that fund. Um, of course, the counter-argument to that is you don't necessarily have to be you know, invested as well as this is my job, this is what I get rewarded for, this is what I get bonuses for, things like that. You know, there is, There's more forms of reward, remuneration, recognition, having skin in the game than just literally having your money where your mouth is, as it were. There have also been some international studies um, looking at you know, how invested fund managers are in funds and that has shown that actually there's not actually in an international context that many. So one Finland study found that only about a quarter of portfolio managers were actually invested in their fund. But then interestingly, it found that those that were, were actually outperforming peers who weren't invested in their fund, were outperforming passive benchmarks. Um, and this was sort of tens of basis points. So it wasn't nothing. It was it was fairly significant. Um, so in the New Zealand context, we don't have to disclose that stuff. Um, and pretty much every firm came back to us citing privacy concerns as a reason for not disclosing it. Um, Booster came back and they wouldn't give us monetary levels, but they basically gave us a breakdown in the aggregate of how much of each of their funds is represented by staff holdings. Um, so we have a table of that on the, on the piece today. Um, again, Milford disclose discloses every month in their monthly update to investors um, how much funds they have under management in total and then 
how much of their staff is invested in KiwiSaver and how much of it is invested in wider funds. That firm has about 20 billion under management and about 150, it sort of fluctuates a bit, 150 million of that is represented by staff funds. Um, other firms, you know, tell us they have policies where things like long-term incentives and bonus schemes and things like that are tied to being invested into the portfolios they're running. Um, Harbour Asset Management, for instance, requires that a certain percentage of, of a bonus each year gets invested back into the product. Um, Nico Asset Management has its long-term in- incentive structure based around investments in your own portfolio as well. So, you know, it's it's quite hard to tell how how much our portfolio managers in New Zealand are eating their own lunch, but there are little snippets of it here and there. And sort of broadly what you hear as well is that it's not uncommon for these bonus schemes, incentive schemes, to have some sort of tie-in to the product. Um, but, yeah, it's not mandated that we disclose it, which is the big question going forward, right? Really. Mm, yeah, I mean, do you think that we should have more disclosure? Well, so in the going back to the US, they... They disclose it in sort of um, dollar bands. Um, so it starts at one to ten thousand dollars, slowly moves up to five hundred to a thousand, uh, five hundred thousand to a million dollars, and then a million dollars or more. Um, you can see, and there were arguments made at the time the SEC was coming out with this rule that you know, if it gets too much more specific than that, you're sort of getting into how much your portfolio manager is worth and all that sort of stuff. And do we really need to know that? But I do think there is merit to um, knowing, to, to some form of disclosure as to whether or not your your portfolio manager is invested in this fund. It could be as simple as yes or no. It could be these bands like they've seen in the US. Um, interestingly as well is you sort of hear um, that this is a regular top of, of conversation with institutional investors. Um, so institutional investors will regularly ask for this sort of information. And again, while specific dollar amounts, things like that might not be given, there's often a conversation around yes or no, whether the portfolio is managed in that certain, uh, portfolio manager is invested in that certain fund or not. It's hard to see a retail investor walking in the door at a fund manager asking for the same information and getting it. Um, so you could argue there's a bit of a um, disparity in the information that different investors have there, different scale of investors, sure. There's no real appetite at the moment, as it seems, to um, introduce any policy, and it would have to come in at a policy level um, to, to, to do this sort of thing. But I just think, you know, total funds under management in New Zealand now is $260 billion more. KiwiSaver has grown to more than $100 billion. That scheme is now nearly 20 years old. Um, we're having all these conversations about how it can evolve, where it should go next, because it is now, you know, that's a big chunk of cash. It's been around for a while. I just think that mandating disclosures around whether your portfolio manager is invested in that fund or not seems like a good idea. It's definitely an interesting debate to start having, isn't it? So, yeah, thanks very much for the chat. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. So the opportunity was uh, presented if I wanted to speak to Chemist Warehouse and look at that as a strategic move for growing Earthwoven. I needed to... Obviously blown away by every opportunity I get, right? Grateful. Um, 
but you that's why having a good strategy I would say is is crucial from the start is you need to was that in the strategy to start with and if it was that would have been amazing because you could say that would have landed on my lap um, so it was very difficult to go back to the drawing board and go that actually wasn't in my strategy and this could be a great some could say easy deal to see where I want to see the brand go quickly um, but that was not where I was at at the time so um, really coming away from that and I think that's an important lesson in business as well there are a lot of opportunities that will kind of jump in your face and be there um, but it's very important to kind of stick to the plan um, and I don't say that as a saint I can say this because I learned that you need to do that um, there's one of me and there's often going to be one of you that makes the really hard out decisions um, so I would I would you would need to really be firm in your decisions and for, for Earthwoven and I, I don't see it, um, I, w I would love people to talk about it, I'd love it to be in a shop that aligns with the same values as Earthwoven and it's as simple as that. Um, every product has a store that they match and Earthwoven has just a slightly different ethics. I love the prospect of the Asian market um, to uh, a few reasons as we already New Zealand made products and dairy and our products have a good name over there so there's a little bit of that marketing already done. Um, a lot of money is spent over there on skincare, they care about their skin a lot more, they care how they look. Um, there's more population obviously, I mean that's the biggest one. There's some cities that I'm looking at uh, have more population than the whole of New Zealand. Um, and I feel like we, as our population, we're more into sports or, or, or you know things like that, whereas there is a whole population in the world that are very much into beauty and how they look and cosmetics and things like that, whereas we aren't so much. I want to address, and I guess as well, it's not just about going, where can we go as, as fast and as hard as we can. I'd love to help people along the way with addressing that confidence still, so it's always that. I would just love to expand that to as many people as possible. It's not going to fit everyone, and that's okay. Your business isn't going to be for everyone something that people need to learn um, and that's okay it hurts to know that but it's again it helps with that strategy and, and, and keeping on path right so yeah your business won't be for everyone but it will be for a lot of people and a lot of people will love that so you have to stick with that um, and that's what I want to do. I started looking at first exporting in March of this year and I've only just signed some paperwork, literally last week. So it takes a lot of time. I'm sure with a team of 20 and a capital, you, you could probably do that in two weeks for sure, um, but a lot of time. <laughs> and getting up at random times in the night to match their time zone, is that has been, uh, yeah, that's actually been more full on than I think because it's not like you get up at three o'clock, that call might be done at seven and your day is starting like everyone else's day so you can't just go back to bed. Um, but yeah, that as well. And I think culture difference, to be honest with you, I've, it's interesting because we're very, um, we're very westernised in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a blessing and an eye-opening to actually learn so much about cultures and markets and stuff. Well, I think, honestly, I don't, you know, mum and dad, that's mum and dad there. I try not to talk about it too much, but um, they would have loved to be living life. So I can't ruin that. I got, I'm, I'm, the one that, I'm, I'm the one that got left here to do it, so I may as well, you know, do something cool with it because 
they would have loved to be here. So, and it's just like, I'm just grateful that I had the opportunities because they, they were more than deserving. I don't know why I got them and they didn't. So make the most of it. For today's Toil and Trouble Employment Law slot, I'm talking to Charlotte Joy, a senior associate at B Employment Law, about the perennial annual concern about complaints arising from work Christmas parties. And Charlotte, Christmas parties seem to generate a lot of work for employment lawyers. They absolutely do, and we get similar calls every year, um, moments of panic, and uh, it's just a continuing issue. (laughs) So what happens if an employer becomes aware that, let's say, um, a woman employee has had her backside slapped at a Christmas party, let's say? So I think the first thing to do is consider internally what sort of policy you do have. Commonly, employers will have a policy around addressing complaints, but often people, unfortunately, aren't aware of them. So I think that's your first point of call, and that's probably going to guide your next step. Um, But another, I think, really good point is just to make sure you have enough information. Do you actually know enough about the allegation and the backside touch um, or not? Yeah, it's it's pretty tricky, isn't it? Because it often does come down to a he said, she said. So what does an employer do to try and keep the peace in that situation? Ultimately, that will come down to what sort of investigation you subsequently decide to um, go with. But you do have obligations to both the complainant and the respondent. And so in terms of the respondent, that's about being fair to them and not making any kind of predetermined assessment of what happens. But then at the same time, the complainant and their health and safety is really important to keep in mind as well. Um, So ensuring that they have support available to them and that might be interim solutions. Um, It could be, you know, slightly different working arrangements even um, or just allowing them to sort of get their thoughts together about what happened. Have you seen situations where a he said, she said is completely opposed, no one else has seen it, and the employer is in the situation of trying to determine how to go forward because it must be very difficult when you really can't verify exactly what's happened. Absolutely, and I think it's important to keep in mind that the employer's, um, I guess, standard of proof is not a criminal standard. You know, we don't have to prove something beyond reasonable doubt. It's just on the balance of probabilities. And so an employer can feel some comfort that they don't have to have a black and white answer, but they just have to consider everything and all of the circumstances. And that might be um, background into the working relationship between between them and the the culture of the the company, um, what sort of behaviour or culture has been accepted or not accepted in the past, um, and ultimately come down to on that balance of probabilities, you know, what do they think happened? So what could be the worst sort of thing that happens to the person who administered the slap if the employer believes that it probably did happen? Well, I guess the worst thing in terms of their employment is that they will lose their job. Um, So you can lose your job for that? Absolutely, you can. Um, You know, whether or not that decision um, is ultimately, you know, justified um, in a court setting, say, you know, that that can never be, um, you know, a 
fully determined at the time of a dismissal, but absolutely, um, you know, we have seen dismissals for that kind of conduct, um, and employers are probably more so now taking a firmer stance on anything that was perhaps previously considered a bit lower level. So that's even if that person has an unblemished record up until that point? Yes, and the record's certainly something that would be taken into account, um, but we are seeing that employers are taking that firm line a lot of the time um, with that kind of behaviour. And I think sometimes they might not want to make a particular outcome, but sometimes they feel like um, they need to set a precedent um, value within their organisation as well and ultimately change culture or encourage a cultural change. Um, I think it's more difficult when an employer has allowed a sort of pattern of behaviour and culture to foster over many years. And if there's been, you know, five Christmas parties that are the same, suddenly you get one incident that you do decide to take firmer action on, that's going to be more difficult for an employer to, um, I guess, you know, justify um, for that, you know, dismissing that one individual. Is the onus ever on the employer to stop providing things like alcohol? An employer does have an obligation to provide a safe workplace. Um, So part of that is, I think, um, wrapped up in how alcohol is supplied. Um, You know, it's really important these days to have someone who's almost like a responsible host uh, there on the evening, sort of keeping an eye on things. Um, There's certainly a common um, theme we're seeing that if there is ever any sort of after parties, that that's sort of where the employer, I guess, part of the night ends. And it's sort of very clear that if there is an after party, that's, you know, the employee makes that decision. The employer is not going to organise it. The employer is not going to pay for it um, and, you know, keep keep their event, um, I guess, in normal sociable hours. <laughs> <laughs> but if something happens at that after party that the employer has nothing to do with... Oh, I, I don't know that you can go that far. I think there is still conduct outside of the workplace that can get caught up in it. Um, but in terms of, you know, monitoring alcohol, you know, we can't, an employer can't be expected to be sort of monitor 24-7. Um, and after a certain point, I guess the health and safety obligations, you could say it's perhaps not as reasonable for them to have that kind of level of control over alcohol. And just finally, so what you're saying really is that employers can't just shove it under the carpet. And we've seen a few cases recently in which employers have tried to shove certain things under the carpet that haven't really worked very well for them. That's that's absolutely right. Um, sometimes it's difficult to um, assess an issue and I think that creates a tendency um, to perhaps not lean into it as much as it should, as, as much as an employer should. Um, but I think particularly that first, um, you know, the first day or so when you get that complaint, that's really a critical time because that's where a lot of the damage can be done. So it's really just grabbing a complaint with with both hands um, and deciding what is most appropriate. Charlotte, thank you so much. Thank you. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. 
to explain the Reserve Bank's November monetary policy statement. We're joined by Deputy Governor Christian Hawkesby. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. So your language in the monetary policy statement was quite strong. Why was that? Uh, well, well, it just really um, you know, captures where we are uh, at the moment in terms of uh, how the economy's evolved, what we've learnt um, from last time, um, how confident we are about um, you know, achieving our mandate, getting inflation back into that um, target range. And, and the reality is that the, uh, the economy has running, been running a bit stronger uh, than we've been expecting. Those inflation pressures are lingering a little bit longer than we're, we've been expecting. Um, and there's little margin of error, really, in terms of wanting to get inflation uh, back down again and just really setting that out clearly. So you have a willingness to hike. What chances would you say there's a hike early next year? Uh, well, at, at every meeting, you know, every option is on, on the table. Uh, you know, that'll be something that we'll come back to uh, in February. It'll be all about um, how the economy's evolved, how those inflation pressures are building or abating. We'll be looking at the full range, you know, of measures of uh, what's happening on the demand side of the economy and, and critically what's happening to those you know, core inflation expectation measures. What are you watching out for most over summer? Well, it is, it is that full piece. It's a, it's a long period of time through mm. summer, as you know. It is a little longer than the normal six-week break, but it will be that, that whole gambit, everything that feeds into uh, inflation pressures. So that is inflation. What do you think of this new selected prices index from StatsNZ? What, how did that help you in your decision making in November? Uh, so, so that'll be one measure that, that you know feeds into our overall uh, assessment. We have a lot of you know indicators that that feed into uh, our overall inflation forecasts. Um, that that, will, that is helpful. That is you know one piece of the puzzle. A critical piece for us is the looking looking forward. Um, into you know how's that going to play out from here, and a lot of that depends on uh, what we're seeing on the demand side uh, of the economy. In terms of the November decision, was there a preference by some members to hike? Then uh, it was discussed, and, and that's outlined in the record of the meeting that um, putting the OCR up was uh, one of the things that the committee uh, did discuss. Uh, you know. Clearly, we, we chose to keep things on hold um, for now and see how things uh, play out. Uh, but I think the other really key aspect of our uh, decision was uh, it's not really since the depths of the uh, of COVID outbreak that we've put so much weight on uh, different scenarios that could play out um, from here. Um, that's typical when you're at a turning point or inflection point. Uh, it is a little less around the central projection and, and how things um, could play out either way. Um, so I think that's a real key message uh, of the material uh, that we've put out. We've got a scenario there where um, uh, demand is stronger, inflation pressures are stronger, and that'll be really something that um, you know uh, forces our hand. You're really watching that migration figure. Well, that is uh, the big news since... Uh, August has been how the population growth mm. and how bigger uh, the population is because of the net migration uh, that's um, kept coming through um, stronger um, than anyone had anticipated. So that's one you know piece of. 
key information since August. We've also learnt a lot around um, you know how net migration plays out in terms of the demand side and the supply side of the economy. So, so I think this time around, and it really does depend on the the, the type of immigrants, uh, where you are in the economic cycle, all of those um, things. And I think what we've learnt is that in a situation where we have been, which is a very tight labour market, mm. a lot of difficulty finding workers then actually the the immediate effect is a supply side one of easing those labour market pressures. Um, so that's what we observed first. Uh, more recently there's been much more signs that the, the demand effects are coming through of just having more people to be housed, uh, the impact that has on uh, rental inflation. You're putting emphasis on the demand side that they bring now rather than the labour supply. That's become more evident more recently, so we, we are getting that, that fuller picture uh, now and, and those, those demand effects are being felt. Uh, we need spending in the overall economy to cool um, for demand to better match supply. Uh, when you've got more people in the economy, uh, that means you need to do a little bit more work to get that per capita um, consumption down. The, the official data is showing retail spending is pulling back, electronic card spending is, is softening. That must mm. be pleasing for you. Well, we are seeing that our, you know, our work is having its effect. You know, monetary policy is working. Uh, interest rates are biting. Uh, we are seeing more subdued um, consumption. A number of those measures coming through. Uh, it's really about are we seeing seeing enough? If you go back to the middle of the year, we talked a lot about watch, worry, and wait. Uh, and that's because we'd lifted interest rates very sharply over a short period. Mm. We thought we're sort of roughly in the right place. Uh, then we just need a little bit of time to see how that played out, see what else occurred uh, in the economy. Um, but you can't watch, worry and wait forever. You know, you need to be willing to, to do something else. You may hike in February. The market is sort of, some pundits are saying there could be a February hike if it's looking too hot in the economy still. Uh, that's, that's certainly on the table mm. and that'll be dependent on, on how the data progresses till then. Mm. So quite a few weeks now till that February meeting. Are you going to be watching something in particular over that December-January period, i.e. migration? Are you going to put more weighting on, on looking at that rather than consumer spending, for example? Well, there'll be all the big you know, numbers will come through, the GDP, mm. um, C- CPI, uh, a lot of information will come through on the labour market. Uh, we've got some big um, business and consumer confidence uh, surveys will, will come through. So all of those you know, key measures uh, will uh, be available. And we'll also learn more mm. about how the economy is working. Um, and that's you know, the other thing that happens in between meetings is just learn more about these nuances around things like uh, the impact of population growth on our mandate. The market is looking for when you may indicate a cut. They've got a little bit more time to wait for that. Yeah, so I think a key key outtake from from our decision and communications this time around is that we're just really not in the mindset to be thinking about um, cutting the official cash rate. If you look at the uh, our central projection is uh, sort of no action on that front next year uh, at all. Uh, it, it really is more about whether we have to do more or not uh, for now. Uh, we will re- revisit that. You know, every three months, uh, and I'm sure that those central projections will move around as as we learn more. You had a constructive meeting with the new prime minister and, and new finance minister. How did the meeting go from your perspective? 
Oh, it was very, very positive, very professional, very, uh, you know, we've been very clear that uh, inflation's our, you know, first, second, third and fourth priority. Uh, you know, it's uh, top of the agenda and we're very focused on that uh, and that's exactly what, you know, this government's uh, wanting us to do uh, as well. So that was that was very clear. The dual mandate obviously has been a discussion point over the last fortnight or so. It looks to be going very soon. How will that actually change the way you operate day to day? So we uh, we put out our, our review of monetary policy um, earlier in the year, which was our sort of backward-looking five years. How's it gone? What have we learnt? Mm. Um, what what have we learnt about uh, the remit or the mandate? Uh, and what we s- said is that over that five-year period, we c- couldn't identify a decision uh, where we would have made it differently if we'd only had a price stability uh, mandate rather than the jewel. And that's because over that backward-looking five-year period, um, the, the labour market and overall inflation pressures were very much aligned. They're telling you to do um, the same thing. We, we did note that uh, on a forward-looking basis, we can absolutely have periods where they would be telling us, giving us different signals, and they might, there may be a, tri- a conflict or a trade-off there. Um, and so we did advise in that remit review for inflation to be given more prominence, um, such that if there ever is a trade-off or a conflict in the future, it would be much clearer where we would land in terms of giving priority to get inflation down because uh, we know that that's so fundamental to us as a central bank and that ultimately it will help the labour market as well. So retrospectively, would you have made the same rate calls if you had a single mandate over COVID? Uh, that's what our five-year, backward-looking five-year review uh, told us, yes, because uh, signals around the, la- the labour market and signals around overall inflation pressures were telling us were pointing in the same way. That might not be true in the future, and I think that's where this uh, having some more clarity and um, to, to the remit will, will be helpful. So would you have gone as low as you did? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so 0.25. So in terms of your workings, if you have this um, inflation targeting only, uh, what will that mean for your staff? Will you need to do any restructures or hire more inflation targeters or or what will you need to do? Uh, I think it's more at the tail end of the process that we've got a, you know, we've got an army of economists who look at all aspects of uh, the economy um, all the economic data, uh, we're still going to have to have people who are experts on the labour market and understand all that, uh, the dynamics of the labour market and all the data coming out on that front because that is such a, a critical indicator of overall capacity pressures in the economy and we know that they ultimately feed into inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, so every central bank around the world uh, is an expert in its uh, labour market for for that reason. Uh, that will continue on. Uh, the differences will be, if any, uh, more at the you know the tail end of the process when it comes to decision making. Um, I'll just also add the you know one that five yearly review uh, of of how we went uh, looking backwards. You know, as as part of that, we have bolstered our resources. We're in the process of already bolstering our resources into our um, economics function and our monetary policy function. So, you know, uh, that's prime for us moving forward. And would you support an inquiry that Nationals called for into your decisions over COVID, specifically? 
Uh, well, the, the coalition have been very clear around, uh, you know, their intention. That there's, there's stated policies there in terms of an intention to have an external review, um, and it's something they've been very clear about. Well, um, you know, we've got our um, five yearly review, which we can contribute, you know, into that, and we'll be, you know, stand ready to cooperate through, um, you know, whatever review is undertaken. And what's your message to households, businesses now? Yeah, I guess your final chance before February. Yes, well, we still are in that environment where just just to acknowledge that um, you know monetary policy is restrictive at the moment. Interest rates are high at the moment. Um, they are likely to stay high uh, for, for some time um, yet, and that's all about you know this process of getting our economy uh, better balanced, um, where where you know the spending can be met. Uh, more properly by our ability to the economy to meet that um, and we're in that process at the moment you know for some people it's going to feel tough um, but there is an end game um, there in terms of getting us on a better better footing for for the future and low and stable inflation is the the goal ultimately and you're comfortable you've got some runs on the board now that's right we're mm. seeing things we're seeing things working um, so you know we're confident Christian Hawksby thanks for your time and that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. 